Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame. I am your host. Today, we have Nicole Ori. Nicole has over 12 years experience working in the alcohol addiction arena. Her background ranges from offering treatment options to exemplary customer service and an acumen for sales and connecting with other people. Nicole attended University of Phoenix and completed a Bachelor's of Science in Human Services and a Master's of Science in Psychology. She has also earned certificates in addiction and health management as well as family and child services. Nicole is a badass bee. Before coming to Lion Rock Recovery to work in admissions, she actually worked with families helping facilitate adoptions and has done some really amazing work. She is a friend of mine. She is a colleague of mine. And her story is one one of those where it's, it's hard to hear. It's gut-wrenching, but it's one that really shows how if you do the work, you can stay sober no matter what through anything. The grief that she dealt with losing her daughter, Addison, is obviously unlike any other pain that a person goes through. And she has been able to honor her daughter's memory while also being an amazing stepmother to her daughter, Amelia, and having long-term recovery. So, Without further ado, please enjoy Nicole Ori, episode 17, let's do this. Nicole, welcome to the program. So happy to have you here. I am happy to be here. This is so fun. Nicole and I actually met when we were, I think we were just trying to figure out like, what, like a week? No, not a week. Uh, in the first year of sobriety. Yeah. Uh, I feel like maybe Askipa and Prescott. Yeah. So it's like young people's. Yeah, we, young people's, I feel like I mean, we all did really embarrassing stuff because we were in our early 20s. But who doesn't do really embarrassing stuff in their early 20s? But we had to remember all of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that is definitely the downside. And not only do we remember it, but like Everyone all of our friends were sober too. <laughs> so, yeah, these are the pitfalls of getting sober young. Um, there are some. And... But those, man, I mean, we had, I don't know, I was talking about this in in the first pod, which was like, when I told my story, which was like, I needed that camaraderie so much. Like the young people's, the vibrant, you know, energy of the young people's conferences and meetings was so vital for giving me that when I was, because I thought that my life was over when I got sober. Yeah. I definitely thought getting sober equaled death of fun. Yeah. And I thrived on drama and chaos still. And yeah. I needed yeah. all of it. Totally. And totally sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we went to all the young people's conferences. I've found I've aged out a little bit. Yeah. Me too. Um, you know. And my husband's a little older and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be on Iggy Pod because I served on Iggy Pod in um, Arizona in 2013. And he was like, you're not young though. Well, tell and people I was what like, Icky well, Paws. That's really rude. Icky Paws, the International Conference of Young People in AA. And that's really rude. <laughs> well, like that's he's really a lot rude. older. He's forty-four. I'm thirty-six. So, like, don't like he's trying to take me up to his age. Yeah. I'm like, no, come down to mine. Yeah, come down to my level. Sorry. Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I think it, <laughs> I think it's like young at heart. That's what I was told. I remember seeing yes. people who were like room to grow. Yeah. As long as you have room to grow. Yeah. But now it, I feel. I just I don't know when I go. Now. I'm like. Everybody's vaping and staying up till two in the morning. And I'm like, Netflix and chill means Netflix and actually chill, chill. to me. <laughs> like it actually means like, all right, like just hang out. I like me some room service. Yep. And definitely am not interested in having other people in my bed, not even my husband. He gets his own bed. You know, like it's yeah. like it's a whole different game. I'm not cramming nine people into one exactly. hotel room for exactly. a cheap room. Yeah. 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 It'll be lucky if I'm sharing a room with anyone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just a totally different thing. But it like, saved my life. It saved my life. That's and what I was I used say. my student loans on it. So. Oh, no. <laughs> I did. It's a whole different sad. It's for that. That's a whole different story. But uh, yeah, it saved my life. It saved my life going being able to get because I got sober at nineteen. You got sober at how old? Twenty three. 
23. Yeah. Yeah. So I we, also didn't know I was that much older than you. I mean. I mean, it's four years, but when you get older, four years feels like a lot. I feel like four years feels like more when you're younger than it does older. I mean, because I thought we were the same age. Yeah. Well, you look very young. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Your skin is glowing. Mm-hmm. Makeup. So, okay, you got sober 23, and you're what's, you know, you have some interesting experiences to share. One of which is that you have worked the 12 steps in Codependency Anonymous. Yep. And you sponsor in Coda, yep. which is so rad. Where did your codependency start? Because that's a childhood thing that, you know, that's a validation early on being addicted to other people. So, can you talk about that? For sure. So I think that way before, or I know that way before I got a drink, validation was my first high. It was my first drug. Home life was a little chaotic. Um, I had really young parents. I mean, not like 16, but they were like in their early 20s, no tools. And, you know, there was just, it, I felt uncomfortable a lot as a kid. Like I, I was, had ADHD was on Ritalin. It was early 80s. Not a lot of people knew about ADHD. Right. Um, Like my mother would take. So it had to have been like real bad. Yeah, it was bad. And I had this counselor that my mother told me about later and he should not be practicing, but he told (laughs) my mom, you need to break her will. Oh, geez. And she tried. Yeah. Right. And she was like, "You, I can't like this isn't right. Something's not right here. And um And so she would, like, take books to my teachers explaining what ADHD was, like, Mm. please read this. Like, like I went through three different schools. So I always felt a part of. I had to go to the nurse's station to get my medication during lunchtime. So I felt separated. Yeah. You said always felt a part of. Not a part of. Yeah. I never felt a part of. (laughs) I was like, no, no. (laughs) I felt very separate. Yeah. And, um... And so I started doing things to get validated, you know. Right, because you were being you were being told you were bad or whatever yeah, it was. Exactly. There's something wrong with you. How old were you when you were diagnosed with ADHD? Six. Okay. So and Ritalin worked, which is probably why I never liked math. <laughs> to be honest. I tried. <laughs> yeah. Because it was cheap, yeah. right? I really yeah. wanted it to work and it didn't yeah. work. I was like, hmm, I just feel sweaty and gross and calm. <laughs> and calm. <laughs> wow, I'm sweating. Yeah, yeah. Pretty sure it's time for school. Okay. And I'm sweating. I know. I, I, I totally relate to that, too. I was like, wait, is this fun? Is this what, is oh, this what so we're going to call fun? Because yeah. I don't feel like I'm having fun. I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> I was like, it was bad. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was like, oh my god, what? Why? Why? Can someone explain to me why we're doing this? And then and then I would have to drink so much. Mm-hmm. It was like it was like yeah, meth is terrible. Yeah, it was kind of a not yeah not great thing. Turns out it's not very good for you either. So no. yeah, chemicals. Yeah. So yeah, validation, <laughs> big deal. I just wanted love, right? Yeah. Like I just wanted to feel unconditional love. I didn't feel unconditional love at home. I felt like it was Are very you an conditional. Only only child. Okay. Okay. No one to blame shit on, right? Like yeah. just Ugh. me. Like that was it. And, so, and all the focus on you. I didn't realize you were only child. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like I had to be really, really good to get love. But, and that was my perception. I don't know if that's how it really was, but right. that's how I felt. And I couldn't be really, really good. It was like not in me, right? Like I had this like abnormal reaction to life of like you're always going to be hyperactive. Yeah. And, but hyperactive isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just hype. It's just not. It just doesn't. You know that that's a whole other topic. But like, yeah. hyperactivity isn't in and of itself bad. It just doesn't go well with a sit school. down school system. Yeah. You know. I mean, exactly. That's, it's not. You know, whatever. But uh, so in fourth grade, I had to go to this like special ed class, mm. and which separated again, yeah. right? Because I didn't have I had no special needs. I was smart. I could do the work. I just got bored quickly. And then I would start walking around the room and start talking. And one time I threw glue at a secretary that was fucked up, but I was so angry. I didn't know what to do. Like I just had all this like emotions in me and like yeah. no one was saying, Hey, what's going on, Nicole? How are you doing? Or, yeah. you know, it was just like, how do we fix her? And could you have even, do you think you could have even um, verbalized what was going on? Had no. someone said that? Mm-mm. 
Yeah. I can barely verbalize what I want and need now. <laughs> I wasn't doing that at eight. <laughs> like, I'm, like, complaining to my husband, I just need help. And he's like, with what? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> help me. Yeah. What? Um, You're fine. Well, I don't know. Just do it, whatever it is. I know. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> so I went to the school for three years, and then I got mainstreamed back. You know, and I've made this goal. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be accepted. But I didn't know how to be a friend because I it was just chaos. And I would go through each group and like kind of be a chameleon of like, what do you need me to be? Right. So that you will be my friend. So codependency. Right. Like, let me be accepted by you because I felt like if anyone knew what was going on in my head, they wouldn't want to be around me. Right. right. Which is also like a lot of people who suffer or have alcoholism. That's what it's just the thoughts always going, going, mm-hmm. going, mm-hmm. you know, so made it through junior high, started smoking pot in junior high. I don't know if I was inhaling. <laughs> I remember being at my you friend's were house. and Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being at a friend's house and. Like, everyone else is taking these massive hits, and I'm like, this joint's rolled too tight. Like, I knew what that meant, but it's because I didn't—I was trying to take, like, a cigarette. Yeah. I didn't know you had to, like, you know, and I was— So you were just a bad—you were, like, yeah. a bad drug addict. Yeah, I didn't know how. Yeah. So that <laughs> uh, was the beginning stages. Um, but I kept trying, <laughs> and I succeeded. <laughs> Practice makes perfect, right? <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I started drinking. Um, I went on this, this. Wait, how old were you? I remember at least probably 14. Okay. 14. Yeah. Oh, should I say this? Okay. So we went to Mexico with my parents and we went on this booze cruise. It was right before I was going into into high school and my friend Amy was with us and you can drink in Mexico. Yeah. Right? 14. It was fun. Like I drank a lot. And (laughs) like I look at my 10 year old now and I'm like, there's no way I would let you drink with me. But I don't. Yeah. It was good for me then. Yeah. I don't know what my mom was thinking. It maybe made you less hyperactive. (laughs) Oh, I got into some trouble out there. I like escaped with these guys from Texas that were surfers. I, you know, I just escaped (laughs) my parents. Me and my friend went to her, their house in Mazatlan. We're in Mazatlan and we don't tell my mom where we're going. And (laughs) we didn't do anything. We were just like, we lied and said we were, you know, seniors. I mean, we looked 14, but they were like, okay. We get back and my mom's like threatening to send us both to the U.S. because she was panicked, right? We Anything yeah. could have happened out there. Yeah, oh, for sure. But yeah, for I don't sure. know missing how teenage really relevant, but I just thought of it. Missing teenage girls in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Tends to freak a mother really out. Really pretty white girls yeah. in Mexico. Yeah, I like mean. that, that would, uh, yeah, I could see how that could just be so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> really gorgeous girls. Uh, well, I mean, if the truth, if the truth fits. What, um... So so that's when I re- – that's, like, kind of my first drinking thought of, like – and it was just go. Like, this is what I was missing. Okay. I feel like as a kid, I always – you know, they say a lot of times in AA, like, there's the spiritual malady, mental obsession, phenomenon of craving. Like, those are the three parts of AA and or of the disease of alcoholism. And for me, my spiritual malady came in the form of – if I had different parents, I wore different clothes, I went to a different school, I lived in California instead of Arizona, we had a different <laughs> house, I had a di- they ha- drove a different car, all of these things externally were different, then I would be okay, mm. right? So that's what I was always seeking through friends and clothes and just whatever externally, then I would be okay. And I didn't know that I had a mental obsession for alcohol. I mean, there was no mental obsession for alcohol before I ever drank it. But once I drank it and on that booze cruise and, and in Mexico, there was no like turning it off, right? Like the phenomenon of craving was there. Once I have one, nine times out of 10, unless I'm removed from the situation, I continue to drink. And when I, um, after that experience, then I had a mental obsession because that fixed all of those external things that I wished were different. It didn't matter anymore. My perception was different. Mm. So internally, I felt okay as long as alcohol was in me. So on Monday, I would go to school, you know, in high school and be like, okay, how are we going to get loaded on Friday? So, and with that, you know, what's coming to mind for me is that I think so many people think that 
well, yeah, you're a teenager. You want to get drunk. Like that's that's part of high school. That's part of, you know, the friends that didn't end up as turning out to be alcoholics. What do you think the difference between you and them was? No one was trying to figure out how to get loaded on Friday when I was, right? So they didn't have that mental obsession. You mean on Monday? Yeah. So on Monday, I'm like, okay, where? who's going to get the alcohol? Where are we going? For and they're Friday. like, Nicole, it's Monday. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but I couldn't be okay until I knew I was going to get to feel that way again. And none of them cared. Right. They, they just like, knew it was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. They were like, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And I'm like, but can we figure? I need to know now. Yeah. I you get, know, it yeah. was like I was an alien is what I felt like. <clears throat> so that's the difference. And there have been a couple people from, you know, that time period that did get sober. and Sure. But most of them just, they were able to just go through life and they seemed a lot more confident than I did. I felt super insecure all the time. But as soon as I got alcohol in me, I felt secure. It yeah. was like, oh, I can breathe again. Yeah, you know? I get that. Yeah, I get that. And it's funny, you know, I took that, I don't know if you have this experience, but I took that like, I can't be calm unless I know what's going to happen on Friday, like on Monday. I took that with me into my sobriety too. Like I am very, I have a very hard time with uncertainty and not knowing how things are going to turn out. And my head tells me that if I don't know how something's going to play out, then it's going to end badly, right? Like it's never like, oh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's it's going to be great. You know, it's like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's going to be a total colossal failure. I'm going to end up, you know, <laughs> at the bottom of the sea. Like it's not, my head is sure that if there's an unknown, then it's going to be bad. And Do you have a lot of unknowns right now? But it, it could be anything. It could be like, <laughs> any. I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, let's what's, okay, let's get, you. yeah, yeah. No, Just wrong. Kidding. Oh, okay. Fake, fake news. <laughs> okay. Fake news. No, uh, no, I just, it's it's something I've had to practice where yeah. it's like. I get it. Where it's like, okay, I don't know. I don't know whether or not, I don't know what school my kids are going to go to. Well, they're oh, two. That's like the worst though, trying to find a school for your kid. But my kids are two. I know, but still. It's yeah. Scary. I and like, just but, did so, it. We just switched schools. Uh, I have a lot of anxiety about it. it. Okay. Yeah. So, but then I'm like, I'm sure that they're going to end up, you know, at Guantanamo Bay, right? <laughs> like it's like the, it's either it's either the perfect school or Guantanamo Bay. For like sure. that's that's what I'm thinking. That's what goes on in my head. Like, well, maybe they'll end up at another good school. You know, like hey, maybe that's maybe they'll end up at the perfect school that you didn't know about. Yep. Nope, 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 nope. If I don't know what's going to happen, if I don't know what school they're going to end up Guantanamo. at, <laughs> no, I mean that's right. It's like they might end up there someday. I, mean, I hope they don't. Because hopefully, they're really sweet. They're really sweet, but hopefully, because they're citizens, that'll help. I mean, oh, yeah. that'll that'll take out the the international piece of it. But you know, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. Both I don't their parents know are a alcoholics. Lot about things. So. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not saying my 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 two year olds are going to Gitmo. I'm just saying like that's where my head goes. <laughs> it's just took like a deep dive. Uh, <laughs> reel it back in. Reel it back. Okay, coming back. Okay, so you found your solution. Mm-hmm. Solution was there. It was great. Went through high school. Actually, I switched high schools and found this lovely place called Sun Valley in Mesa. It's I was talking to this girl on the plane from coming here, um, and she was like, oh, so what high school did you go to? And I was like, well, I went to Coronado, and then I went to Sun Valley. And she goes, oh, the school for the bad kids. And I was like, yeah, that's where I went. <laughs> she actually said She literally said that. Uh-huh. She was the same age as me. She went to school in Mesa. And, uh, and she's like, yeah, that's where all the bad kids got sent. And I was like, yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, and it was my experience with alternative. We called it alternative school. Yeah, yeah. Alternative school. We had a daycare there. I got to work in it for an elective. That's amazing. Yeah. No, dude. Alternative school. I mean, I learned how to do coke there. You did? Yeah. I knew how to do coke going in. I didn't. Yeah. And then I went back to like I met up with my friends at my previous school and was yeah. like, yeah, so I did cocaine. Yeah. And like, and they were looking at me like, you're gross. Yeah. And, and I you're was like, like uh, oh, I'll never arrived. see you again. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. like, no, there's a whole world out yeah. there. Yeah. Like you guys have no idea. I was like so excited to tell them. Yeah. And they yeah. just were like, oh. They're not on the level. No. Yeah. I, I thought alternative school, I mean. To be I loved it. Perfectly honest with you. It was awesome. <laughs> it probably wasn't great for my spirit, but it was great for activities. Yeah, and we started at like 10. 
and ended in like three and had smoke breaks in high school. Yeah, we we were able to smoke on campus. Yeah. That was great. I don't know what time we started. I think we had Friday half days. Yeah. It didn't. I was able to use my work hours for credits for electives. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, yeah, basically we're really well educated in high school. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, good. I mean, you know, it was a good school though. Like it did. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I don't tell wanna... us more about the academic. The academic. Like, I don't want to say rigor. Talk to me about the academic rigor of the Sun Valley School. But it helped a lot of people graduate high school that wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Right? (laughs) Like you. (laughs) I probably would have graduated. What happened was I had gotten in a physical altercation (laughs) with my last friend that I had at Coronado. And I was like, I can't go back there again. (laughs) I have no friends. Yeah. So I was like. I'll try this school. And then I met a lot of friends. Yeah. And they were like me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out the kids at the yeah. alternative school are a lot like me. I had that experience too. I graduated a year early from all my work hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. For my Rhodes Scholar. Because we didn't have like sports or anything like that. You're, you're, we had a daycare. You are legitimately playing this place up. We didn't it's have- really good <laughs> <laughs> for people who need a different route to graduate. And yeah. I needed that. Yeah. I graduated high school early, early, <laughs> a year early, class of 2000. And yeah, and, and that's where, you know, they talk about this invisible line that we crossed. That's where. When I graduated high that summer, I mean, it was fun, a lot of fun, but there was no, I mean, I don't know if there was ever normal drinking, but there was no going back after that. Yeah. I mean, we drank, we had a couple houses we partied at, we drank always, you know, and, and Coke and pot and I don't know, they were probably doing some other stuff, but those were my main three things that I wanted to get down with. Did you, you know? have... I had like, well, in the beginning, <laughs> I had like rules of ways I was going to keep myself within the no- whatever I believed to be the normal range. Like I, uh, well, I mean, for me, mine was like, I'll never drink and drive. I'll never use needles. I'll never, like I had these different things. And depending on where it was, like I'll know I won't use alone. All these things that I thought kept me away from a problem. I laugh because it's, I was still doing things that were abnormal. But um, did you have like rules around your usage trying to control that? Not that summer. I had rules my last year of using. Okay. So okay. I got a DUI. As soon as I made it to this alternative school, I got my first DUI like a month after I was there, right? Okay, so it was my first time um, getting my DUI. I've had three DUIs, 16, 19, 22. Okay. Right? Around 19 when I got that second DUI, I tried to make rules, right? So I was like, there's a problem. None of my other friends have Two DUIs. Okay, so the second DUI was yeah. The first DUI was oopsie. Yeah. The second DUI was the the first DUI happened because there was this really cute boy and I was about to get sick, and I was like, I got to get out of this house now, and I like threw up in my car. I got pulled over by highway patrol. My poor mother had to come pick me up Mm. at like you know whatever time it was, but that yeah, it was like I went to juvie for a night. My parents paid my fines. Yeah. No consequences, really. I lost my license for three years. That was a major consequence. That's a major consequence. I get it back for a month. I get a second DUI oh. in my poor mother's car. Oh. Yeah. I lose my license again. Why did you, and I'm asking this for the people who are learning about the forays of us exotic animals, um, What? why would you drink um, and drive a month after getting your license back? The story is like so ridiculous. I first got a minor in conception at 6 a.m. at a house party. I was also not, I was on Coke and drinking. We called that an MIC. It was amazing. (laughs) That night was amazing. Actually, I don't remember it that much, but I'm sure it was amazing because I had the right combination. (laughs) If the right combination's there, I know it's a good night. So I'm like, I'll talk to the cops, right? Oh, Lord. Because I'm not sober at all. Right. And I think I'm probably the most sober here. 
that's my head. I'm the most sober here, so I'll talk to them. It's not even my house. Why am I trying to be a hero? <laughs> Codependency, right? <laughs> I'll help. I'll save you guys. I'm trying to be the hero. Um, <laughs> so I get a minor in consumption. Then I'm like, I have my mom's car. Like, I live with her. I don't want to pay those repercussions. So I ask the cop, can I drive home? I swear to God he tells me yes because he probably knows I'm not stupid. So I get in the car and I turn it on and he arrests me for a DUI. Are you kidding me? No. It was insane. I go to jail for that in the tent city, mm. which was – we don't Arpaio. have that anymore. Yep. Let's not even get on that yeah. creature. But, yeah, I go in tent city in January. If you don't know what tent, Arizona tent city is, look, that's a Google search for you. Oh, yeah. It's miserable. I had like 12 blankets on and was still freezing because you're in the middle of the desert in January. It's cold. Oof, it's super cold. Yeah. yeah. And it's scary. It's really scary going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so scary. Yeah. So I get out and I meet um, Prince Charming, good old, I don't, I'm not going to say he's an alcoholic, but he loved to drink the way I did. <laughs> and... Uh, and we, you know, and he was a really good boyfriend. You know, I, I felt like this is a great relationship to get into. I get pregnant two months after knowing him. And uh, and I was like, all right, you ready to move in? Like, let's not get married, but let's definitely, I need help now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm pregnant. And this is the first time since I was 14 that I'm not drinking. Why? Right? Because you're pregnant. Yeah. yeah. I tried to drink one time. I got really jealous, and I um, we were at a party, and, you know, because I'm 19 years old. I'm not – I'm still going out, yeah. right? I'm just not doing anything, but I got really jealous, and I tried to drink, and I threw up, and that was around being pregnant three months, and I was like, okay, I can't drink, yeah. you know, because I have no tools, right? And I have so much compassion for women who have no idea they have the disease of alcoholism. They get pregnant. And one, they can't stop drinking because they have no choice, right? Because if I could have chosen not to ruin my life by the age of 19 with two DUIs and just all the other chaos that comes along with it, which we did not have enough time to talk about, but I would have stopped drinking or at least managed it better, yeah, right? Yeah. Stop it too. Mm. Maybe four. Get <laughs> at least a good buzz, right? Four, I feel like, is a good buzz. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even capable of coming up with a, a like a, a plausible a number. Yeah, like we can't even <laughs> we even our our attempts at being moderate like in theory don't work. I feel like four is a good moderation, isn't it? Apparently, it's two. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, I guess yeah, there's yeah, just yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. in me that's moderate. <laughs> yeah. Two does not sound like a good time. Apparently, yeah. Well, apparently, okay. it's two. All right. Well. That's what the experts tell me. Oh, good for you, normal people. Yeah. Okay. So I um, – <laughs> Sounds boring. <laughs> I mean, I, that's why we don't drink. Yeah, Because exactly. you're like, on what planet do you want to have two? I like, like that's, that's – I mean, that's a perfect example, right? It's zero or four. Yeah. It's like – for me, it's like having – you know, and this speaks to my – it's like having like a bite of – a Snickers bar or, like, whatever those... And then throwing it away. Yeah, like, yeah. so sad. Yeah, and it's like, I'd rather not have anything. Like, I don't want to... I'm not not trying to, like, want the rest of it all day. (laughs) Not... not For sure. You know? Yeah. That's that's not cool. Or, like, one goldfish. Forget it. (laughs) You know? That's... It's not meant to be consumed in such small quantities. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I'm an alcoholic, so that, that fits. It checks out. Yeah. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. So what I was saying about um, the compassion that I feel for people who 
become pregnant, right? And they have no idea they have this disease. And I didn't know that I had it. I was, you know, able to stop, not by choice. I got sick and I smoked pot a couple times. He, I couldn't understand why he couldn't come home without drinking because we're pregnant together now. Like let's, and I stopped drinking, Mm -hmm. right? But some women can't and it's not a choice. And and they carry around deep guilt and shame because of it because they can't understand why they can't stop drinking. Right, right. You know, but so alcohol quieted my mind for years. Yeah. And now it's gone and I'm left with me and I don't have a sufficient substitute. And so I would call my mom bawling. And, and hormones. Yeah. And hormones. And I'm 20. And it's just I'm living in this like 400 square foot apartment There's a freaking gas leak, I think. I'm, like, calling the freaking, you know, it's just chaos, right? It's like that's where I end up. (laughs) Yeah. So I I would call my mom crying and be like, am I crazy? I feel crazy. I feel like a crazy person because my head was just so loud. And, um, you know, I had my daughter, and she was born really, really sick. She was born with four heart defects. She had two holes in her heart. Her aorta wasn't connected. And she had something called double outlet right ventricle, which happens to like one in every hundred thousand babies. It's like very rare. And and she was born really sick. And she had open heart surgery, I think three or four days after she was born. And she lived at the hospital, you know, and we would be there. I would be there like 16 hours a day, go home, shower, come back. And, and there's this part when I had gotten pregnant, this kind of shows like what my alcoholism looked like or that I didn't even know that I kind of forgot I had a problem when I was 19. The more that you drink, you just forget about it. And it's like it's gone. Right. When I was pregnant, I didn't think this is my chance to start new. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to be this great mom. I didn't think I needed like a redo on life. Right. I thought it was a given I would be a good mom. I'm having a baby. I'm just going to be a good mom. I'm going to turn 21 four months after she's born and my mom can watch her when I want to go out. Right. That's my best thinking. Right. I didn't think that I needed to stop what I was doing. I thought it was going to be automatic. I'm not going to want to drink every day. Right. Right. I'll just drink on the weekends and my mom will watch her on the weekends. Like you just thought that you were naturally going to transition into this next phase of life. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I didn't think... Particularly given the ages that you were, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like you're 19 and, and those, you know, I think we hide in a lot of those those age ranges, you know, like, oh, well, I'm 16. This is what 16 years old. I'm 19. This is what, you know, like, but really what we're doing is way beyond. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so um, so she was born really sick and and she was two weeks old and... It was mine and this guy's one-year anniversary, and my mom was like, why don't you go out to dinner? I'll stay at the hospital with her. And so for me, I've had this mental obsession to drink for 10 months at this point, Mm -hmm. right? And I was like, yeah, I deserve a break. Like, this is hard, you know? And so we go all the way out to East Mesa because I'm still 20, but there's this one bar that'll serve me. And I ordered these two really pretty red drinks. It was buy one, get one. And my mom, and I had taken a sip, right? And my mom had called and said, get down to the hospital. You can hold your daughter. And her name was Addison. And uh, and it was going to be the first time I was going to be able to hold her since she was born. And so this is what my alcoholism looks like. If I'm presented with an option to show up for life and drink, I don't get to choose after I take a drink. The choice gets removed for me. And so I sat there with on the phone with what felt like five minutes, but it was 30 seconds, really debating, do I want to go to the hospital and hold my daughter or do I want to stay here because I deserve this drink? Mm-hmm. Look what I'm going through. And sh- I can hold her tomorrow, right? Like, Or I'll be there later on tonight and then I'll hold her. And And so I'm just going back and forth through my head and like by – you know, the grace of God, I made the decision, this is important, I need to get down there. But I down the drink first, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, hold my daughter buzz for the first time. And I can see it in the pictures, you know. And um, there was a similar story that I heard around five months sober of someone who had to make the decision to either stay at the hospital with his girlfriend who was dying or go make last call. 
And when I heard that at five months sober, it like hit me like a ton of bricks because I wasn't totally convinced, but I wasn't drinking at that point. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I will always choose drinking over life, no matter what the circumstances. That means I'm an alcoholic. And I started grieving. I was sad that I was never going to be able to drink again. Like it felt like forever. When you got sober. Yeah. Yeah. And so... What happened, um, so that was just, you know, the story that reminded me of that when I was five months sober because I was in the, in the you know, the same situation. Go hold your daughter that you yeah. love more than anything. I yeah. loved her more than anything, right? Yeah. And um, so what happened with her is she lived for another four weeks and we had to make the decision to take her off of life support. And um, she just wasn't getting better. She, her organs were failing and... And so we did. We took her off of life support. I held her. And I made this, it was kind of weird that I remember this, you know, she she passed away that night. And I remember standing outside, it was like five in the morning. And I made this like pact to myself. There were these drugs that I was never going to do again. But it was weird because I, I was like, I'm never going to do ecstasy again. I'm never going to do acid again. But the reasons behind it was I was so afraid of what I would see Mm. instead of I need to change my life, right? Like alcohol was still on the table. Alcohol was more on the table at this point than anything else because now I really need it Mm -hmm. because I have no coping skills for life. He went to prison three days after her funeral, her dad did, and I was like left with me and then I turned 21. And it was just done. I mean, I don't, I would drink really hard, like Thursday through Sunday, recover Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I worked at a brewery, you know, where I could drink after. And it was just for the next three years, it was just trying to, I was so angry and so hurt. And I didn't go to counseling. Yeah. No one, none of my friends had kids. Right. And I was 20. And did anyone suggest counseling? Yeah. yeah. I tried once. I mean, you know, I had state insurance and I went to this counselor and I couldn't really understand her that well. And I was just like, this isn't. Yeah. This isn't working. Like alcohol is a way better solution than this. <laughs> well, it's much faster. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I still lived at home with my mom and and fast forward to my last couple weeks of using, I had developed these these rules by this time. You know, it's weird. So I don't know if my liver was shutting down or like, because I definitely wasn't telling the doctor the truth. But towards like the last five months of drinking, I started getting these rashes on my abdomen that were pretty like severe and um, at night, my hands and my feet were like swelling and my arms were tensing up and my leg, you know, I was just so dehydrated. But I would, anytime I would drink, I would get these rashes on my abdomen and I would go to the doctor and get steroid shots. Oh <laughs> I'd be like, gosh. I need another steroid shot. And he would give me one, right? It yeah. was like kind of not great. But this is how important alcohol is to me. So I um, started getting this rash and I was like, gosh, I think I'm allergic to cotton. Right. <laughs> uh, naturally. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm like, gosh, or maybe I need to, uh, I think maybe the laundry detergent. I need to buy all hypoallergenic laundry detergent. I need to buy natural shampoo and conditioner. I had gotten this cat when my daughter passed away. And I was like, gosh, could I have gotten allergic to the cat? Like, I can't get rid of her. Like, what am I going to do? And, you know, it's all these things I'm right. like, trying Anything to figure but. out. Yeah. And then I was like, well, maybe it's vodka. So I'll just drink this instead. And then I'm like, maybe it's the hops in the brewery that I work in. And, you know, just How when I got sober. you were drinking a day? It would be at night. I wasn't like a day drinker. Okay. Okay. Like I would go to work hungover, eat some like bar. You know, it was weird. I would I got hungover every single time. I threw up a lot at night. I had the spins at night. But in my head, I was like, you're doing this to yourself. So these are the consequences and just, you know, suck it up. Like, you got to keep moving forward. Right. And um, I would have the whole, like, wake up in random places and be like, have the shame and guilt and be like, oh, my gosh, why did I do this? And I'm not going to drink tonight. But as the day goes on, I take a shower. I'm feeling better. You're overreacting. Yeah. That, you know, you're you're not going to drink as much tonight. Right. 
and then it would be the same thing over and over and over. And I started making these rules. I started trying to control it. I don't know if they were totally rules, but I was trying to control it. And so I'm going to smoke pot instead, and I'll be the designated driver. So mm-hmm. this will. These are two ways to control not drinking. Mm-hmm. But then I would go out, and it would be like, "This sucks. I'm so bored." Everyone else is like dancing and having fun because they're really drunk. And so I would take like five shots to get the high away. <laughs> <laughs> totally normal. Totally normal. Yeah. And and then I would it would be great, you know. Yeah. And that's how my last night of drinking was. I I um, smoked pot. We were all going out. I'll be the designated driver. I get there. This sucks. Drink some shots. Everyone else to figure out a way home. I'm taking a cab home. Well, we all ended up coming over to my house, and um, and I wanted to go get some more pot next door. So I go over there. They're not answering. And then I come back, and this guy has, like, coke out on the table. And I had these rules about cocaine that I had made <laughs> around, like, 19. If I can't get it by 11, don't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm not sure. Eleven why. just felt like a good cutoff. Yeah, it's like last call for blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blow last so call. So if okay. I get it All before, right. it I'll, doesn't I'll make it. a difference. No, right? absolutely not. <laughs> it might make a difference. You know, it might make a difference in terms of like how much sleep you get. Like that's the only thing I can think of. But like, I'm going to bed at like 9 a.m. No matter what. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right? No, you're right. Or I, maybe not. If I get it at 2 a.m., then yeah. You know. Yeah. Like I, I would. The only thing I can think of is that you were like. <laughs> I'll be high from 11 to whatever, and then I'll be ready for work in the morning. But the thing is, with Coke, it's like there's no stopping. No, because if I can get more, I'll do it forever. I I always call it the drug of more. Like I think the high is the feeling of I need more. Like I'm not even sure – what the high is other yeah. than like I immediately oh, like I loved it though I still have I, hard time watching it on TV alcohol me too. I'm totally fine with which is weird because yeah. I drank way more than I did coke yeah but if I see it on TV I'm like oh because the way people do it on TV great. is sexy and the way that yeah. we do it is not for I felt so glamorous <laughs> did you like I looked oh. down to like junkies and methanics I'm like I do coke yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> that's <laughs> I, I remember my best friend being like because she was a math addict. I'm like, that's so gross. And she's like, you do coke. I'm like, yeah, it's glamorous. Yeah. yeah you <laughs> like, know, and I believed it. I, no, I, I believe like a that. Rock star. I believe that. You know, <laughs> I had a special way of taking something that was glamorous and making it look like gutter pump. Oh, I looked like complete trash. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. I you but know I, I felt like I looked fe- glamorous. Yeah. And and honey, that's all the, it's all about perception. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like I look beautiful. So okay, so I probably did to some of the people because they were all trash too, right? <laughs> oh my god, she's still like well maybe I did to someone. Okay. Well, you know, we, a girl can with dream. a laxed face by the end of the night yeah. from the alcohol. Yeah, and, yeah, oh. you were hot. What can we say? So, so okay, so you be 11, 11 p.m. We you blow past eleven, literally. Yeah, past eleven. Two a.m. I get back and I was like, Fuck it, let's it's let's party, Time to ride or die. Right? Right? Ten. Then somehow we leave my house. I'm talking about politics and religion, which oh, I know boy. nothing about. I don't know anything about it at this point. But <laughs> the other, that's the other thing Coke does. <laughs> but I definitely do on cocaine. I'm like, yeah. I know everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the party's over at 10 a.m. I don't want the party to be over. But everyone's like, no, we're going home. And I'm uh, like, wait, why? Such a bad let's feeling. Keep, let's keep par- – like, why? We're having so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> don't leave. So I get home – um, and this, I don't. You're 22. I'm 22. Okay. I'm 23. Oh, I'm you're 23. It's your last. Yeah. Yep. I'm 23, and uh, we get home. Still living with my mom, and uh, I think she was out of town. I don't know. <laughs> it's like goals, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm 23, living at home, and I roll out of bed at like 3:50, and because I have to be at work at four, I call my boss first when I right when I get home, and I'm like, I can't come into work tonight, and I was like, I haven't slept, and he's like, Well, you have to be here, so get here at four, and I'm like crying, and I'm like, I can't, I can't come in, and so I have to go in, but 3:50, I roll out of bed, I have to be there at four, and I look in the mirror. 
and I have this moment of clarity and and this woman um, that I used to be in a home group with, Stacy, would remind um, or would um, say a moment of clarity was when God stops the lies long enough for us to see the truth. Ooh, I love that. It's so good, right? God stops the lies long enough for us to see the truth. So the truth was it wasn't because I had an abusive childhood or my daughter died or I felt uncomfortable with not having friends or whatever the story was at any point in my life or that he went to prison or all of these things, right? Like that wasn't why my life was the way it was. My life was never going to get better if I didn't stop drinking and using. That's how I was able to see the truth. My dad had gotten sober two years prior to me. He tried to get me to go to the Flagstaff Roundup once by saying, there'll be cute boys there. And I was like, oh, I might come. Yeah. You know, I usually worked for me. Yeah. But then he said, but you can't drink all weekend. And I was like, mm, mm. I can't come. Yeah. I just can't. Wow. We just went from a <laughs> 10 to a zero. I was so disconnected. You know, I me hanging out with my family was me coming over on a Sunday, laying on the couch, hungover, right. asking for 20 bucks when I left. And I thought I was being a good daughter right. and saying I'll pay you back, knowing damn well I was never paying that $20 back. <laughs> you know? I think they knew damn well too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I needed that. I remember getting sober and actually paying them back. And he was like, whoa, you're paying me back what you borrowed. And I didn't have to borrow any money after about six months sober ever again. You yeah. know, like I was able to be self-sufficient and like not spend a hundred dollars at the bar, you yeah. know, yeah, or whatever it would be. And uh, so he took me to my first meeting. He was really smart. He called a sponsor. He said, take him take her to this young people's meeting. And mm. there was this Alana club over on 64th Street and Thomas. And it was kind of like the Canyon Club. Like mm-hmm. there was a lounge and a snack bar and a lot of young people. It was a 10 o'clock meeting and and I saw cute boys. Mm-hmm. I looked a mess. Mm-hmm. I'm in sweats and an oversized sweatshirt. And I'm six days sober, which is the longest I had been sober at that point. And I didn't get a... Tw- I didn't raise my hand for less than 30 days, but when they said, do you want a 24-hour chip, my dad kicked me under the table. (laughs) (laughs) So I got up. Now everyone knows I'm new. And um, the meeting topic was God shots. My dad just reminded me of that the other day. He came and saw me speak a couple weeks ago. And so at the end of the meeting, they read a vision for you, and this guy said, Nicole, will you come up and read a vision for you? And I was like, oh. So I had to walk up all these stairs, and there's this podium and stage, and I'm up there, and I'm reading it. And it was the first time I had felt hope in, like, forever. And I was like, maybe this can work for me. Maybe I can, like, have a life back. And at that point, I didn't care if I was never going to have fun again. I just wanted mm. to be free, mm. right? Like, I I was in a prison for so long and I felt hope, and I circled the Alano Club a couple times, like, will someone talk to me, please? I don't know what yes. to do. My dad's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what to do with my hands. Doing. <laughs> but there was this girl, Jessica, who um, was visiting from New York, and she introduced me to a couple people, and and I came back the next day. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And I still kind of went to bars because I didn't know what to do with myself, and mm. that was my life, and I would drink, like, six Red Bulls in one night and feel like I was coming down off of cocaine. It was fucking terrible. So that was like the first month sober. Mm -hmm. Um, But I kept going to meetings every single day. Um, I got a sponsor and uh, I had a lot of sponsors my first year sober. (laughs) (laughs) Which is abnormal. I fired so many. Yeah, it's not normal. Most people get a sponsor and they do like the the suggestions, right? Me, I was like, I'm not wrong. Fired. And then I would get another one and do steps one, two, and three. And then we get to four and you're fired. And then steps one, two, and three. And like, then I wanted to date this guy. And he was like, well, I won't date you unless you work the steps. And I was like, all right, I'll work the steps. So I worked the steps. And uh, and I got so much freedom from it. And, um, you know, God knew what I needed. The validation, <laughs> my codependency was alive and well at that time. And I got the freedom that I needed and I got really involved in service and uh but I still had this codependency thing going on and around a year and a half sober I started dating someone who relapsed a lot and couldn't stay sober and my best thinking around three years sober was if I just go do heroin with them then we can be together yeah 
That's scary. That's terrifying. I've never done heroin in my life. Yeah, that's terrifying. But, but that that's, was my best thinking. But that to me is class. Like I totally, because my codependency came up so intensely early on in sobriety. Oh, like yeah. really scary, really scary thinking. And so, yeah, I mean, it, as crazy as that sounds, I understand that that like mindset where you're just trying to, trying to, I was in a situation where the boyfriend I had relapsed. We were both sober. He relapsed, which he, and he was on parole. So like him relapsing was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And he took me to a party where they were swinging, but no, I was the only one that was A, sober, and B, that knew that, that it didn't Wait, know. What do you mean by swing? Like swingers. <laughs> oh, my God. Like they were swingers. Like everybody so was swinging. I thought we were going to like a couple's barbecue. <laughs> and everybody was swingers. I didn't know, and I'm the only one sober. Yeah. I was like, yeah, like talk about feeling <laughs> Talk about feeling like an idiot. But this was the kind of thing. And it was like, and it got super weird from there. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on? Like, oh my gosh. But anyway, I, you know, I was, I, I'll, that's what you would do. I'll leave, yeah, yeah, I'll leave out the details. But basically like I, A, stuck around. I didn't, I didn't get into the swinging. I was like, yeah. no dude, not happening. But like he did start making out with somebody else's wife. And I was like, I don't know what's happening right now. Oh my like God. literally was, you know, but but then the next day, like so this happens, I <laughs> things are going real weird. And I still stick around because yeah. I'm like, and then I'm like, okay, well, do I need to become a swinger? Like I'm not really into that, but like, oh, you know, and you start considering and and luckily I was like, no, I do not need to. I'm not doing that. This yeah. is absolutely insanity. My, I went to a party. My boyfriend starts making out with some dude's wife in front of him. Like, this is insane. But those, you know, and he's using. And this is the kind of stuff where like where the – but I need the validation and like I don't want to change boy – you know, I don't yeah. want to lose him. And and we start thinking – You move your line just like yep. in alcoholism. Yep. Move what's your line okay. of what's acceptable. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a swinger. But yeah. All right. that happened. So did you do heroin? No. I stayed sober. And I think like my saving grace was I still was involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had sponsees. I had, I served on committees. I was, you know, I was in the middle, but I started not telling my friends about getting back together with him because okay. there was so much shame and people were tired of hearing about it. For sure. I mean, you know, I was tired of talking about totally. it. It was exhausting. And um, I remember one time hanging out with him and leaving his house and saying, I'm not telling anyone about this. And my next thought was, then you're going to get loaded. And I texted my sponsor and I said, I just hung out with him. I don't want any secrets, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And she was like, okay. Yeah. But I didn't have the secrets. Yeah. And that's what will get me loaded is feeling like I can't say what is going on in my life because I'm experiencing shame or guilt. and. Mm -hmm. And it got really bad, and, and my codependency progressed, and um, you know we finally called it off. And but it felt like um, you know I had I kept going to counseling for my daughter, but I would start talking about them, whoever I was dating. Mm -hmm. Right, that would be my focal point. And I remember having a counselor saying, "If you get back with him, I can't counsel you anymore." Wow. And I was like, "Then this is over because I can't stop." Right. Right. I couldn't stop. Yeah. And so I never I, went I back totally to her again. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't know how to not do this. Yeah. You know, it was just like with alcoholism. And so I would go for counseling with, for my daughter. I would talk about them. And finally, um, I did, you know, my friends begged me to call this woman and was like, will you please go through the CODA steps? And I was like, yeah, I'm willing. And Codependency I, Anonymous. Yeah. yeah. Codependence Anonymous. And and I started meeting with her and I started going to this counselor and seeing him once a week, every week for a year on belief systems. And I got down to like some causes and conditions of why my belief systems were the, the way they were. And it was it was really eye opening, but it was also really painful, you know, seeing the unavailability of my dad when I was younger. I was trying to recreate this role and these partners that I was dating that were totally unavailable and I remember going to my counselor and saying, this is what I want in a partner. And he said, no, you want to want that. And if you had that, you would be bored. He also said I was addicted to unhappiness, mm. which I was completely appalled by and <laughs> cried and stormed out of his room. How dare you say that? No one's addicted to being unhappy. And fast forward, I, you know, I, because the 
ties in with this part. I go through the counseling and I meet my current husband and I do the code of steps and all these things. I was terrified to get into a relationship, but he's everything that I would have never dated because he's available and he's kind and he's loving and Mm. he's considerate and all of these things. And I would have seen that as weak. My perception of a man was so skewed. I have to make you want me. Right. Right. And he just wanted me. Yeah. And um, we get engaged and and we're about to get married and I start kind of sabotaging things and I go into this new counselor to I started doing EMDR and that uh, which I had done at three years sober on my childhood. I started doing EMDR, which helped a lot with healing with my parents. And then I went in to try and do EMDR on my daughter. And the thing is, is like I had accepted that she passed. There wasn't trauma surrounding that. I don't know if we call it trauma, but the issue was I felt guilty being happy and successful in life because if I was happy, then she doesn't matter. Yeah. How can I be happy when my daughter passed away? Yeah. So we went into, we did do EMDR. She was really creative with it. And I saw a picture, like a flash of me and my husband walking down the aisle and I'm just laughing and I'm so happy. And I just like start bawling. Because I feel so guilty that I'm moving on. Yeah. And I and he had a two-year-old daughter that I got to be a stepmom to. And and it was really hard because I hadn't I had no one to ever talk to about her, even yeah. sober. When I got sober, I didn't talk about her at all. Addison? Mm-mm. I like cut that part out of my life. And then around three years sober, all of my friends started having kids. Yeah. And I was like so grateful that their kids were healthy. And I feel kind of messed up saying it, but also it turned about around to like, well, why was my kid born sick? And they all get to have healthy kids. And I kind of went, and that's when I started seeking counseling for it. A couple years ago, one of my best friends, Kara's daughter, passed away, and and I I showed up for her, and um, I talked about Addison more during like since that happened than I ever had in my entire life, like since she was born. And there was a lot of healing that came from that. And though I would have never wanted that to happen to my daughter, I'd much rather have her here. I can say like no experience I've ever gone through has been in vain. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. With all the pain that I went through with losing her, with all the pain that I went through in that codependent relationship and sobriety. And I remember in that relationship being on the ground crying and being like, God, this better not be in vain yeah. because this hurts yeah. really bad. Yeah. And I was like detoxing. When you cut, when you make the decision to never, to not date or talk, I couldn't have male friends. I couldn't have Facebook. I couldn't have Instagram. I could not get validation in any way. Mm. It's like a physical detox. That's, it's but, the most uncomfortable thing. It was harder than getting sober. Yeah. No, I it, because you are sober, because you're sober while you're doing it. But what's so fascinating about that is, you know, the experiment of like how much how much validation do we get that we, you know, that we don't even know. Like, so much. Wait, you know, ways. <laughs> no, right. It's so much, right? So you you did that and and I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It was terrible. And the girls that I sponsor now and I'm like, okay, this is what I did and it's ex- and I'm like I know you feel like you want to rip your skin off right now. It's excruciating. Yeah, I get it. But like, there's hope on the other side of this. You yeah, know, there's freedom on the other side. And yeah. how did you? So your you your friends start having babies, and 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 you're raising your husband's mm-hmm. daughter. What does your life look like today? Today it's really good. My husband just celebrated a year sober. Um, in February. That's awesome. So there was, you know, a little relapse in there and he pulled it together and he's killing the game. And uh, I get to work for an amazing company, Lion Rock, which I love. I feel um, of total use and purpose. And uh, I guess this is not a plant. I didn't plant this, by the way. (laughs) It's not a plant, but I, you know, I worked at University of Phoenix for 12 years and since 2011, I wasn't happy, but I stayed, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a good income. I had great benefits and I got to work from home sometimes, but I wasn't happy and I wasn't living to like my fullest potential, but I stayed anyways. And 
you know, I love that I get to tell people I love my job. I love what I do. I love the people that I work with. And um, and my daughter's 10. She's uh, my stepdaughter, daughter. She's starting a new school. She's doing really good. Everything's really good. I mean, I go to AA. I sponsor. I have a sponsor. I stay connected. What's the single greatest thing that shows up for you when you know that your recovery is in trouble? I start disconnecting from my sponsor first. So what does that look like? I stop calling and checking in. Okay. Because I do a weekly check-in. You know, when my when I first got sober, I would call my sponsor like five times a day. Yeah. Like, what do I do now? She's yeah. like, go take a shower. Yeah. Okay. I'll go take a shower. Yeah. And now it's like life's really good. So I check in once a week. I also see her at my women's meeting. I go to a women's meeting every Sunday. But what it looks like, I mean, I've... I made this commitment two years ago. I don't get to have balance anymore. And I know that sounds weird. Yeah, that sounds weird. So I, when I got five years sober, I felt like I had arrived, right? And I don't need to sponsor as many girls. I don't need to go to as many meetings. I don't need – they were all – I started putting rules on sobriety. Mm. If they don't have a car, mm, I can't sponsor them, right? If they don't call me before this time, I'm not picking up the phone. I started putting all these rules on it and because I need balance. I need to balance my life. And I got really sick and really miserable and really isolated. And thankfully, I didn't get loaded. But I and because I still was going to one meeting a week and I was doing the minimum. Right. right? But I wasn't all in. And I love being all in. And so a couple years ago, I made the decision I'm going all in and I don't get to pull back, right? And so what that looks like for me, my typical week is I work Monday through Friday. My weekends are spent sponsoring, right? And then I go to a Friday night meeting with my husband. Saturday night sometimes uh, we'll go to a meeting together and then I have my Sunday morning women's meeting and I get filled up, you know, every weekend and then during the week, I have, you know, a couple of things that I read. I talk to my sponsees and yeah, it's a, it's, I'm all in. It's a, it's you're all in. It's integrated into your life. Before we before we wrap up, how did you stay sober through the relapse of your husband? There was a lot of sneakiness going on and I didn't know all the time. I never really knew what didn't. I thought like as being someone sober, like there's no way I could do be in denial Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I never really understood what denial was until I was in it. And I can now see that there were things that I justified behaviors and all of these things. And I was still connected. Right. It wasn't in my house. It was never yeah. It, yeah. like I never saw the act. Right. So I think that that's a huge difference there. And I wasn't three years sober living in codependency anymore thinking, well, I'll just join him. Right. You have all these tools and you were connected. This isn't okay for my life anymore. Yeah. And so you need to either make a decision to get sober or you have to leave because I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And thankfully, he said he'll try again and he didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. If you go all in, AA is that powerful. You have to have the ability to have like this honesty and this willingness to be able to continue to show up every day, even when you think it's not going to work. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I didn't think it was going to work when I did the CODA steps or the AA steps. I did not think it was going to work, but I had no other choice but to try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that we talking, we're talking a lot about 12 step and, and, you know, my experience is that the combination of the treatment that I did, the actual therapy that I did, and then, creating a life in 12-step programs was what worked for me. And it sounds like that's what worked for you is, you know, the combination of those things. And one thing, I'm married to someone who's in recovery. And one thing we talk about, we've actually literally talked about, like, what does it look like if one of us goes out? Because we are no longer the same person that that the other person married. Mm-hmm. And so we've had conversations about, okay, if I pick up And that doesn't mean like if I pick up and it's out of control. That means if I pick up, period. If I pick up, period, because I'm a heroin addict and I don't know how long it'll take me to get there, but I'll get there. Yeah. And, you know, so we've had conversations about like, okay, so one of us is loaded. 
you know, your job is to protect the children. This is what they, you know, like what what either one of us will do, like, you know, like an emergency plan. And it's sad. It's sad to have that conversation, but it's also like this is the reality that those of us living with this disease have. And I think you've been through, my sponsor has actually, you know, been through, you know, been through relapse with her husband. I know other people too. And, and the people who make it out, you know, the best are the ones that were already doing everything they needed to do for themselves, where their recovery was on point. Yeah. Their recovery, they had, it was integrated into their life. It wasn't an emergency go back to. It was a, okay, I'm already going to meetings. I'm already connected with other people. I already have a support system. And now I get to utilize that. Because one thing I have done in recovery which is let go of my recovery, yep. like like in terms of all the things that we do for it, right? All the meetings, all the, the service, all the different things. And then come into like massive conflict crisis. And then I'm reaching back, right? I'm reaching back. I'm like, please come back. Please come back. For, you know, particularly with boyfriends, whatever. You drop all your friends, that kind of thing. And and then you yeah, re- it takes a while to get back. Exactly. And so you're reaching back and people, are, you know, people, it doesn't come back right away, but you that's when you really need it. And so the the, the way to fare best in those in, when life happens, because life does happen, is that you're already connected. You're already yeah. there. And it sounds like that was really huge for you. Yeah. If I wasn't, and because I had made that commitment before, right. you know, he got sober, because I did get more disconnected, you know, through time. And I was like, this is not, I did not get sober to be miserable. Right. Well, that's at the thing. All. That's the thing. And we, we, that's a big thing we talk about. Like, I'm getting sober so that I can have a happy, joyous, free life. And if that's not what's going on, then I don't want to be sober. Exactly. And I reserve the right not to be. Mm-hmm. I reserve the right not to live, you know, miserably. And for me, I, you know, with alcohol and drugs, I I can't live with them and I can't live without them. So I need something else. Yeah. You have an incredible story and I love the piece, the work that you've done in, in Codependence Anonymous and all the different tools that you've used because I know you've worked really hard and used all those different tools. And, and you've been through some stuff in sobriety, man. I mean, you really have surgeries and... Yeah, um, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, There's yeah, not, yeah. But I mean, just a whole life. <laughs> it's just like you've been through life, and yeah. in and and you're thriving, and and so I think you're just a really wonderful example of all the different ways that recovery can work. And um, I'm really grateful to know you and be part of your journey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 